You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 10. The Five O'Clock Club. A small lapel badge from the 1960s TV show The Five O'Clock Club. It's mounted on a piece of dusty velvet in the glass case that hangs on our conservatory wall. It's not the only badge you'll see there, and is of little intrinsic value, either monetary or sentimental. The adjacent Puffin Club badge probably means more to me, but when I came upon it during one or other move, I couldn't throw it away. Everyone in the live audience for the Five O'Clock Club got a badge, me included. There was none of the raising money for charity or winning a competition malarkey you got on Blue Peter. You simply took a badge out of the big cardboard box on the way into the studio. It shows a black clock on a white background, indicating the time as 5pm. And that's it. Not much to shout about, but when I turned up to primary school wearing it the following week, I was king for a day. With friends asking, in hushed tones... Did you meet Muriel Young? What was she like? My memories of watching the Five O'Clock Club at Rediffusion's television centre veer between vivid and patchy. I was obviously excited to be at a real television show and eagerly joined in with all the audience participation. But I also remember discovering how shabby the studio looked in real life. And at one point, I flinched when a grumpy cameraman hissed at me to get out of the way. And I remember feeling frustrated by the lack of any public address system for the studio audience. One presenter, the actor Jimmy Handley, had a five-minute slot demonstrating model railways. But with all the camera operators and sound crew buzzing around, we could barely hear a word. Associated Rediffusion broadcast the Five O'Clock Club live twice a week on ITV. It was a magazine programme presented by Muriel Young and featuring Bert Whedon, giving guitar playing tips, the aforementioned Jimmy Handley, cookery with Fanny and Johnny Craddock, plus a couple of bands. And providing comical interludes were the glove puppets Fred Barker and Ollie Beak, the forerunners to Basil Brush. It's not a show fondly remembered in the camp nostalgic sense that people recall Thunderbirds or Adam West's Batman. Neither is it lionised in the manner of Doctor Who or Bagpuss. It's simply one of the vast majority of old TV programmes which were broadcast then wiped from existence, playing no useful role in the fabric of popular culture. Well, almost. Fans of Bob Dylan will be familiar with the groundbreaking documentary Don't Look Back, which follows the man's fractious and often bad-tempered UK tour when he forsook the purity of the folk singer, donned a leather jacket and shades, and, worst of all, played an electric guitar. Partway through the film, on May 4th, 1965, Dylan relaxes in front of the telly in his Savoy hotel suite a respite from his gruelling schedule of being called Judas in various provincial concert halls. And the poetic voice of his generation isn't watching anything weighty or profound. He's watching the Five O'Clock Club's Muriel Young and Fred Barker introduce a band called John Mayles Bluesbreakers. Don't Look Back was the first film to take popular music seriously as art. 
the template for every documentary to wash up on BBC4. And slap back in the middle is a tantalisingly short glimpse of the towering cultural figure of the 1960s relaxing in front of the five o'clock club, and one wonders what he made of the rest of the show. Did he enjoy the domestic banter between Fanny and Johnny? Did he pick up any new guitar licks from Bert Whedon? But for musos like me, it raises an even bigger question about 1960s pop culture. Specifically, how did John Mayall's Bluesbreakers end up playing on a tea time kids show? In 1965, the Bluesbreakers were a cult act on the London jazz and blues circuit. They released a seminal album a year later, the one with Eric Clapton reading the Beano on the cover. But when Bob Dylan caught them on TV, they were very much an underground act, adored by the kind of acneed male fans who dismissed any single that graced the charts as too commercial, man. The Bluesbreakers' sound was for people who wanted to hear genuine blues straight from its spiritual home on the Surrey Delta. Such a purist blues act deigning to appear on TV in 1965 was unusual, but for them to be sharing a bill with Fred Barker and Dolly Beak now looks impossible. For comparison, imagine the producers of The Tomorrow People hiring Samuel Beckett as a guest scriptwriter, or Karl Heinz Stockhausen featuring on the panel of Jukebox Jury. But after a little digging, an answer presented itself once I discovered that the musical director of the Five O'Clock Club was Alexis Corner. Throughout the history of media, there have been public figures leading shadowy double lives. I'm not referring to the likes of Jimmy Savile or Gary Glitter here, more to the sidelines and day jobs performed by people better known for something else. The most obvious example in the modern era is Anthony H. Wilson, who by day fronted Granada Reports in a shirt and tie, and by night owned factory records and managed Joy Division. Less well known is that the comedy legend Kenneth Horne was the managing director of Chad Valley Toys, or that Murray Walker, when not commentating on Formula One, worked in advertising, where he wrote the slogan, Opal Fruits, made to make your mouth water. Alexis Corner had been a talented jazz and blues guitarist since the war. Not famous, but a regular face on the live circuit. In 1961, he started a band called Blues Incorporated. As intended, its personnel constantly changed, with many young singers and musicians arriving and leaving, often to form their own bands with other members. This amorphous mass of spotty Herberts grouping and regrouping eventually gave the world the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, Cream and Led Zeppelin. But the charming and well-spoken Corner also had a day job as the musical director at Rediffusion's Wembley Studios. This partly involved booking bands for the Five O'Clock Club, and because the Baron Knights or Freddie and the Dreamers weren't always available, he easily filled the music slots with artists he knew and often mentored. For their part, the bands earned a few bob and got some exposure, albeit surrounded by pre-teen kids clapping on the beat. And that's how Bob Dylan ended up watching the Bluesbreakers, featuring Eric Clapton's first ever TV appearance, whilst relaxing at the Savoy. And now I'm left wondering, if a tatty forgotten kids show 
managed to host John Mayall's Bluesbreakers, then what other hidden treasures are lost to us? Does Joe Orton's appearance on the panel of Call My Bluff live only in the memory? Are all the live performances of Tom Lehrer on the Frost Report lost forever? And if Fred Barker can turn up in a seminal Bob Dylan documentary, who knows where we might discover Pussycat Willem. That was The Five O'Clock Club, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this story, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.